Welcome to Behind the Warrior, a podcast presented by the EOD Warrior Foundation. This series will focus on resources, interviews, and topics impacting EOD warriors, their families, and the military community at large. Good morning, Mike. How are you? I'm doing great, Sherry. How about yourself? I am doing well. We are starting to have a little bit of fall weather here in the Panhandle, so I'm happy about that. You think so? I had mosquitoes attack me last night on the front porch, so we're not quite there yet, but okay, it's well, good thinking. Never mind. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome everybody. Thank you all for listening to Behind the Warrior podcast. And today I am honored to introduce our next guest. This is Adam Pop. Adam is U.S. Air Force EOD, medically retired, combat injured EOD technician, and he is a current board member for the EOD Warrior Foundation, in addition to being a certified peer mentor with the Amputee Coalition. Adam, welcome. Good morning, Sherry and Mike. Thanks for having me. Good morning, Adam. Good to have you. Yeah. Well, Adam, we Good always, yeah, it's always great to hear your voice, Adam. And um, we're we're looking forward to chatting with you today. Adam, I'm gonna, thank you. I'm going to go ahead and get this thing started a little bit. So one of the things we like to do with all of our guests is we like to have them tell us a little bit about yourself. Like, where did you grow up and how did you end up in the Air Force as an EOD tech? Yeah, Mike. Uh, so I grew up in a really small town in southern Indiana. It's just uh, across the border from Louisville, Kentucky. My town was called Lanesville, Indiana, and it had like 500 people or less in that town. Um, so I grew up in that town, uh, spent a lot of times outdoor and playing sports there. Um, went to school in that local area. And like I said, I played sports all the way through uh, high school. And then when I became a senior in high school, I was trying to figure out what was next for me. So I looked at um, going to school, looked at Purdue uh, for an engineering program up there and potentially even looked at playing soccer at a smaller school in Indiana. And then I started exploring this third option of joining the military. So I had a cousin who was in the Air Force and I had a cousin who was married uh, to an Army soldier. And then my grandfather had also served in the Army along with his brother and his dad, who was actually in World War One. So I talked to, you know, a couple of people who were very familiar with the Army and my cousin who was in the Air Force and familiar with the Air Force. And everyone said one thing, uh, join the Air Force. So uh, took a really hard look at that and uh, started pursuing that option. Met with a recruiter. Um, and then, yeah, shortly after uh, high school, I joined the joined the Air Force. Um, it was probably two months after I graduated high school and then was off to boot camp in Texas and then kind of started my military career from there, which, you know, spanned about 12 years. Wow. And uh, how did you get into the EOD career field? Did you have that picked out at the very beginning? Did you zero in on that when you were coming in, or did that happen later? Uh, it definitely happened uh, when I was in the process of talking with the recruiter. Um, this was 1997, so before I knew what an IED was, and I think most of the general population knew what a you know, improvised explosive device was, um, and my recruiter kind of gave me three options. I took my took my ASVAB test, and then based on those results, um, he just started, you know, naming off a couple of careers that those scores lined up with. And one was, I think, uh, like a helicopter mechanic and like radar maintenance. And then the third was EOD, um, which is the first I'd heard of that. And he kind of explained 
explained it to me and, you know, being an 18 year old gun ho kid, uh, it sounded really intriguing to me, um, reading about all the things these guys did. And so I kind of picked that in the recruiter's office that day, uh, signed up for that, um, brought the paperwork home to my parents and my mom was like, Oh heck no. <laughs> she, you know, she was re- reading about the, uh, you know, working with weapons of mass destruction and nuclear weapons and, you know, terrorist devices. And she was just kind of reading the, 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 uh, blurb that the recruiter printed out and I signed and she was like, Oh no, this is not good. Like you cannot do this. Um, but long story short, uh, followed through with that. And I guess I went off to boot camp and then started EOD school in, uh, September, 1997. Adam, you had been in the Air Force for a number of years, I think 10 plus, and uh, you were deployed to Afghanistan, which was not your first time. And then on December the 7th of 2007, while on a combat mission, you were disarming an IED when you were injured. Can you tell us briefly about that day and uh, what were your initial thoughts after you were injured? Yeah, sure, Mike. Uh, That's right. I was on my second deployment. uh in Afghanistan. My first was to Baghdad, um, Iraq in 2004 and into 2005. But uh, on this day in Afghanistan, the previous night, we had worked with um, an SF group who had done a medical evaluation in a local village. We were, my team specifically was on a route clearance patrol team who helped clear into this village um, because it was a heavily laden with IED area. So we worked with uh, those teams to do this medical evaluation the night before, slept in our vehicles that evening, and then when we woke up the next morning, uh, there was a call of an IED under the road across town. So uh, my team departed with a different security element and went over to that area, kind of assessed the situation. It was uh, called in as an IED underneath the road in this kind of culvert area. So my team went to work on that, um, you know, started working with our robot, but eventually like our robot couldn't remove everything from underneath the road because of how far it was located underneath the road. So then that's when I, you know, put on the bomb suit and went down there to kind of assess the situation and remove what I could, um, from underneath the road to make that kind of area safe and to disarm this IED. And in doing so, I learned that it was a hoax device, which we had kind of seen in this area before. Um, I went back to the truck to kind of let my team member know um, what was going on. And then he relayed that to the security element because a lot of times, especially in this area, what we had seen before, they're putting secondary devices um, to kind of attack the the other elements that are security. And um, once, once we're kind of down on scene. So I went back in for a second approach. And during that time, um, an, a, a secondary device went off and, you know, I was pretty much on top of this device. Luckily I was in the bomb suit, um, kind of blown through the air and was awake the entire time aware of what was going on and landed on the ground and was just, you know, as you can imagine in pain and you know, thinking to myself what that happened. And, uh, luckily my team member was in the vehicle and so he was safe and he ran down there almost immediately cleared into me. And then they started uh, bringing in the medics and other security elements to kind of sit up a cordon, get me stabilized and then get me on the uh, medevac chopper and out of there. What were the, uh, what were the injuries that you sustained that day, Adam? Yeah. I mean, when I was laying on the ground, I kind of didn't want to 
looked down, I knew my leg hurt. I knew my arm hurt. Um, I was still in the bomb suit, so I wasn't really sure what was going on. I was still in this culvert and, you know, kind of in this low line area and the, the medics and security element put me on a stretcher and pulled me out and started assessing the situation. And a guy, uh, one of the security guys who I'd worked with before, um, was there for the whole thing. And we had a little bit of a rapport and, you know, he just asked me like, do you want to know what's going on? Do you want to know your, you know, know your injuries? And, uh, I was like, yeah, just, just give it to me. Just let me know. Um, and he was like, well, like your legs really damaged and probably won't be able to save that. And I'm not sure about your arm. Um, so, you know, that really started bringing a sense of reality, um, to what was going on. And, uh, I didn't, you know, I was worried, obviously, uh, I was more worried about if I was going to live. I felt like I was, um, that would be the case, but, you know, really just started like, what the heck's going to happen now? Because uh, I never really thought about that situation prior to this. Um, so, you know, like I said, they put me on a medevac chopper and I, I went to uh, a medical uh, cash center on Bob Salerno and talked to the surgeons before the surgery. And, you know, they put me under uh, and then I woke up later that evening um, after tra- traveling through Bagram and then over to uh, Lonstuhl, Germany. Woke up in the hospital in Germ- Germany that same evening, you know, missing my leg and arm all bandaged up and just really out of it, uh, you know, coming to after after being put under for so long and just in a lot of pain and, and a lot of confusion, uh, to be honest, and spent about four days in Lonstuhl. Uh, I think I had about three surgeries there to stabilize my leg and arm. And then uh, they sent me to uh, the Washington, D.C. area four days later. I arrived there on December 11th um, at Andrews Air Force Base, medevaced over on a bus to, um, to Walter Reed. And then that's where I you know, spent the rest of my year or so in recovery at, at Walter Reed Army Medical Center in the Washington, D.C. area. It's uh, pretty incredible that how fast you went from the battlefield to where you were injured to the, the FOB base in Afghanistan, Bagram, Germany, and then you were you were at Walter Reed, and this was in a matter of what about four days? Yeah, that's correct. That's correct. I mean, I was in Germany, and the you know the same day I got hurt, I was already in a, a you know well established hospital in Germany. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, you're right. A couple of days later, I was back back stateside, uh, you know, receiving the best care in the world. Yeah, that's a that's a huge testament to the logistics and the and the medical community and the DoD and how well they 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 have been doing that. I. I think one time I saw a briefing uh, when I was in the hospital uh, talking about the timeline of getting the, the injured soldier from the battlefield back home. And in World War II, it was months. And in, uh, even, even right. in Vietnam, it could sometime, sometimes take months. And, uh, and so our recent conflict has been a matter of days. But that, that is truly amazing how fast they got you back to uh, D.C. Right, no doubt. And, and you know, big big reason why... Uh people can recover and survive and recover as well as they do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely, Adam. Um, Well, it wasn't long after your arrival uh, to Walter Reed that you and I met, and um, I was able to meet your mom and dad at that time as well. And it certainly wasn't, it's a day that I'll never forget, Adam. Um, I, um, 
hold you and your family very dear to my heart, and uh, it's it's hard to believe it's been 13 years since since we met. Super grateful um, to always celebrate your Alive Day with you, and uh, you know, just always, always grateful for you. And um, with with that, Adam, I just also wanted to you know speak about and talk about after you were actually stabilized at Walter Reed and on your journey of the long intensive rehab, um, how long were you actually at Walter Reed? And can you tell us some of the challenges that you faced as a new above knee amputee at that time? Yeah, definitely. And, and that, you know, it seems like it's so long ago, but it also seems like yesterday too. And, and uh, it's just incredible how time flies and, and the progress that has been made in, um, over those, those period of years, uh, I spent, I got there in December, uh, 2007 and then left Walter Reed, um, around June of 2009. So about a year and a half there. Um, and some of the challenges I faced, you know, I was in a deployed environment, you know, probably as fit as I was leading up to that, um, as fit as I was in my entire life and, and very fit person, out on combat, you know, patrols and, and doing the work that I did. And then literally the next day I'm laying in the hospital bed, having to depend on you know, others for care and helping me stand up or use the bathroom or, or just do very basic tasks. So it's, uh, you know, it's a difficult um, realization to, to wake up to that just, you know, a day later after being as healthy and fit as I was. Um, so I'm very grateful for, the people who I met early on, such as yourself and the foundation, um, you know, comforting to have my family there and then all the healthcare providers who, who really helped me get through those early, early days in the hospital, which are very difficult. And it mainly because there's just so much unknown, as I mentioned in that previous, uh, discussion about, you know, I never really imagined losing a leg in combat. You know, you always, think about the what if if you get killed in combat but you know to be injured and lose a limb I never really uh thought about that so to be at the hospital and in this situation there was so much unknown at the time and uh you know luckily like I said people were coming in and visiting me and a lot of these people were amputees who had progressed in the recovery sometimes years or decades down the line um, you know, from Korea and Vietnam, um, and coming into the room and having these discussions with you and just seeing firsthand how successful their recovery was. Um, and then just having discussions with them and asking them questions. Um, and they really started to help me put these unknown pieces together to, to more, uh, you know, what a, what a full recovery looks like, what a successful recovery looks like. And, this gives you a little bit of hope when you're laying in that hospital bed so early on. Um, and then shortly after, you know, it's kind of that crawl, walk, run phase um, of military training as you're working up for a deployment. Um, you know, similar to being in the hospital, you're crawling early on and just trying to figure things out and what you can do. And, you know, there's a ton of support structures there to help you achieve these goals. And, you know, some of the early goals are being able to, you know, walk on a prosthetic or wear a prosthetic even, and then, um, you know, being able to do your activities of daily living, as they call them, and just kind of take care of yourself. And, you know, this hierarchy needs just progresses on 
doing bigger and better and more things. Um, but early on, that's completely, you know, unfathomable to you um, as you're laying in the hospital bed. But luckily, like I said, there's, there's these other, uh, you know, people who have successfully um, gone through the recovery and, and able to help guide you through this process, which is really overwhelming initially. Sure. Well, they gave you, you know, those folks that came to see you that were um, also amputees of, of whatever nature, whether it was leg or arm or, or had a disability from previous wars, I think served as an inspiration of, of hope, really, because it gave you the ability to see that pe- you can live with this injury. You can. And um, I, I know that um, if I recall correctly, and I can't, and I'm, I'm going to say his name was Tom, but I'm not sure, but he was the, the tall gentleman. And for many, many years, I didn't even know that he was, he was, he was missing a leg. Um, right. Jim, Jim, Mayer Jim and, uh, it was Jim, uh, yeah, the milkshake Jim, guy, Jim the milkshake right? Man, that's right. <laughs> and there was Jim, another the guy, Tom, mm-hmm. Tom from the, uh, the Korean War lost both his legs and yeah, both of them, you would never know mm-hmm. that they were even amputees, uh, and, until you started talking to them and, you know, having they're they're, you know, when you're in that situation, they're more worried about you and answering your questions. But once you get to know them and start learning their story and, and how, you know, they've been really thriving the past 40 or 50 years since their mm-hmm. injuries, uh, just amazing. And testament amazing. to what is possible. Right. Absolutely. Well, um, I know that there were many, many days that I would uh, visit Walter Reed and you would be down at the MATC working on your rehabilitation and recovery. Can you tell us about what the MATC is like and maybe what it stands for also? Yeah, it's the, uh, I think it stands for the Military Advanced Training Center, and it's kind of the amputee physical therapy and occupational therapy uh, wing of Walter Reed. So all the uh, service members um, who had been, who had lost limbs, um, it's mainly the amputee care uh, ward. So all the uh, service members who had lost limbs um, are in this area and going through rehab. So you know, it's everyone from that, you know, first week person who was injured a week ago um, to people who are a year, a year or two, or maybe, you know, several years down the line who would come back for care. And, um, you know, it's the PTs from Walter Reed, physical therapists, um, working with these individuals, really helping them through the recovery and guiding the way. And, you know, as a newly injured patient being in there just to see kind of what maybe six months down the line looks like by, um, you know, witnessing people walk for the first time or mm-hmm. running or doing, you know, cycling or doing these other activities in this amazing um, training center just, again, gives you hope and you can see firsthand what, you know, the other individuals are doing, other amputees are doing. Um, and it really gives you a lot of hope yeah. early on in the process. Absolutely. Definitely saw a lot of progress over the years, Adam, um, in with, people with varying degrees of injuries and uh, some incredible people that work there at Walter Reed to assist along the way and provide that encouragement. And I know that you made a lot of friends while you were at Walter Reed to include some of the staff. And also, you know, you, you made it sort of a priority to connect with some of the newly injured servicemen and women that were coming in that um, weren't always, didn't specifically have to be EOD technicians, but 
certainly you walk the halls with me many, many days um, and weeks in reference to just visiting our, our EOD technicians and their families, providing a little bit of inspiration and also being available if they ever wanted to talk or explore um, questions and, and get some answers from somebody that who had been there and done that. And you were still in the process of recovering at that time. But um, what led you really to maybe consider being a mentor, but also led you to your involvement on a more formal level with the EOD Warrior Foundation? Yeah, I mean, as I just mentioned, those early visitors for me were instrumental in my recovery. And just, I mean, I would not be here without the people I talked to early on and the amputees I talked to early on that you know, gave me advice and hope and, and just showed me the way. So I kind of wanted to help continue to carry that on and carry that forward and kind of repay what, you know, so many had given to me. Um, my prosthetist, my prosthetist at the hospital was also uh, an amputee himself. And he was, uh, he put it in a great way that, you know, he was a civilian um, who lost his leg at the age of 19 and, and he, he ne- never met another amputee his own age until like three years after his injury. And he said that was like really hard and devastating. And, and you know, he would see older people who had, you know, lost their legs to diabetes or something and wasn't, you know, weren't as active. So he didn't really um, get the same level of firsthand experience that I did and, and really, you know, someone to kind of role model after or, or help them through that process help this guy john through this process so i you know after we had that discussion i was like man this is really important and um you know being in this situation at walter reed where you're around these all these other peers um is just you know it's kind of a blessing in disguise there's yes there's a lot of amputees but we're all working together kind of towards that same goal to um get back to normal if you will so that weighed heavy into my decision uh, going forward on working with you and working with the Amputee Coalition of America, um, just to kind of put some of that um, experiential knowledge uh, to some more formal training and then, you know, combine those together to, to work with the newly injured patients or the foundation um, in kind of, like I said, repaying what, what I had received when I was in the hospital early on. Mm-hmm. Um Unfortunately, after I transferred out, uh, transitioned out of the military and was working at my civilian job, uh, the foundation came to me with a, you know, kind of a once in a lifetime opportunity to join the board in a more official manner. And then, you know, from there, it kind of snowballed into doing visits with you and then transferring companies where I had even more time to, to spend at the hospital and you know, roll with you once a week on visiting the new patients and having lunch with them and getting to know them and, and just being kind of a, um, you know, a resource for any questions or kind of ideas or whatever I could be um, to help them be successful in their recovery. Well, I know that you helped many um, servicemen and women in just being their friend and being able to listen and also give a level of understanding. And um, I was witness to that and appreciated that every week, Adam, that you were with me. 
After leaving Walter Reed, you stayed in the D.C. area and worked for a military contractor for some some years. Um, You decided to go back to college to get your master's in rehab counseling. And can you tell us what inspired you to choose that major? It's it's a lot of that stuff that we just talked about, but um, it was a a really long process to get to that point and to kind of realize that um, that's what I've wanted to do and, and would, you know, enjoy doing and was kind of fueled by a sense of purpose. Um, but really, I mean, that process to, to finish my bachelor's, which took about six years and a lot of time off and being in a program that I hated and, um, and, you know, just didn't really have the motivation or dedication to stick with that program and then transferring to something that years later that, a program in psychology where I found interesting and kind of aligned with these um, previous areas I worked in um, with the patients and, and, you know, you at the hospital. And it was just six years to get to that point and then kind of snowballed into this uh, rehab counseling program that, um, you know, I just felt like uh, it was meant to be and kind of aligned with all those things that, um, you know, I'd worked with or worked towards um, in the past and really loved and kind of lost my way a little bit when I transferred out of the military and got a, you know, got a job and was working as a defense contractor and doing things that, you know, paid the bills, but weren't really, um, weren't really fulfilling to me, I guess. Um, So when I kind of learned about this program and then started uh, working towards that by doing the undergrad and then, applying to that master's program, I I really started to um, find something that, you know, got me motivated, got me back to those feelings that I had previously and um, really just a more fulfilling, um, more fulfilling life and a more fulfilling role. Um, And, you know, that was a two-year program, very intensive program with uh, a lot of uh, practicums and, internships and you know more than a full-time job but you know never felt like a day of work uh, just because it was so fulfilling. Adam I know that when you were uh, going to school you also made a decision to uh, take up another challenge and you started running marathons and then that went into triathlons which you're doing today. Uh, what made you want to run marathons and triathlons? I know that you had mentioned previously that uh, you were a person who took your fitness very seriously. Was this natural for you to become a marathoner and compete in triathlons? Was that something that uh, was kind of organic and, and you were familiar with? Or what kind of a challenge was that and why did you want to do it? Oh, mar- marathoning was the farthest thing from uh, what I imagined when I started running and um, you know, being in the military and being forced to run three or four times a week, uh, I never liked it and never enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, it was when it's forced upon you like that, it's just not that enjoyable, especially waking up early and doing that in the military. But, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, as, True. <laughs> as I kind of alluded to earlier, uh, with changing the programs and kind of reassessing my goals and in t- early 2015, there was a lot of change going on, on in my life. And, uh, once I started gaining some clarity and kind of um, setting these new goals, uh, running was something that um, intrigued me. But, you know, I tried early on at the hospital, but I had a broken hip, um, you know, before you start wearing a running prosthesis. 
they do a bone density scan and during that process um they learned that i had some necrosis or bone my bone in my hip was dying so i kind of went out the window and for a little over seven years i just kind of you know um, accepted that as reality so once i started making these life changes in early 2015 and kind of reprioritizing things um I had an opportunity to kind of readdress and reapproach running which um you know I, I went up to walter reed and worked with my prosthetist there and kind of told him what i wanted to do and then you know he helped me um you know start that crawl walk run phase again and you know, it was very slow early on and, you know, doing a marathon was the furthest thing from my, uh, from my, on my mind. And, you know, it was April, 2015 when I, April 15th, 2015, when I took my first laps around the, uh, Walter Reed track. And from there it was kind of, you know, okay, I'm on my own now. And, and just slowly started building up a little bit of confidence and endurance and, um, and uh you know strength and you know day in and day out i would go out there and run a little bit or walk mostly walk in the beginning and it just kind of snowballed into marathoning and triathloning and all the ridiculous stuff that's going on now that's incredible uh to take up a challenge especially as a single leg amputee uh what kind of what kind of challenges do you face versus uh those who aren't amputees that are running marathons and triathlons how is it different for you as a single leg amputee and could you also talk about the prosthetics i imagine that they continually get better and better and uh where do you think they're at today and does that does that also help you as far as uh making it easier for you to compete in marathons and triathlons yeah i mean um let me dissect that a little bit it's uh so the, the difference for me is, you know, being, being an above knee amputee, I don't, I have a mechanical knee on that side that is very unstable. So especially running on surfaces that aren't flat or even road surfaces for that matter, um, it's very easy to, you know, stub your toe and then, you know, the knee will collapse and then you'll fall down. So initially early on, uh, that was kind of the biggest fear and I was running, running in a, a, a harness that was attached to the ceiling initially to uh, catch me if I fell. And then, like I said, I progressed to running outside and, you know, it's still a scary process of, uh, you know, not, not ever being able to, not ever doing this previously. And then, you know, go, go running outside on the road without any kind of support or something kind of safety net, I guess. Um, so that's the biggest difference. And then, you know, other differences are, you know, the wear on the prosthetic and, and how it attaches to your leg. Sometimes it can cause blisters for some people, um, breakdown, um, you know, the, the nutrition and the, the oxygen consumption or, you know, concerns, especially for amputees. And then the shorter your residual limb is, uh, the more oxygen and nutrition you're using. So it's just, um, just comp- compounded being an amputee um, all these things are just compounded um, and then what was the second part of that question sorry Mike oh no worries uh, do you think yeah. that the prosthetics that were you were initially introduced to do you see them getting better are they getting better as far as not only just being able to do day-to-day activities but uh, doing something more rigorous such as running triathlons marathons etc well, where that, do you see that going yeah I mean it's 
definitely uh, the, the prosthetics field has definitely progressed um, even since I started wearing my daily walking leg. Um, you know, I started out in what they call a C leg and it, it's a great technology it has a microprocessor computer in there um, that can you know help you with your gait swing and, you know, catching you if you start to, to fall. Um, but even since then it's progressed to, I wear an X3 now and that's, a similar microprocessor need, but also waterproof. So before I was having to kind of be very careful on doing activities near or in the water with my, my previous leg, but this one's, you know, really durable and can go in the water. And as far as, you know, the running side of it, the new um, like carbon fiber materials, you know, they've helped runners come a long way since, you know, the seventies or eighties when, I've seen videos of, uh, like, say, Terry Fox running on, um, you know, kind of a wooden leg across Canada, doing 26 miles a day across Canada on just kind of like a wooden peg leg with, you know, no no technology whatsoever. Um, so it's come a long way in just, whatever, 30 years, 40 years since that happened. Um, but I've been running on the same running running blade for, uh, since I began five years ago. And I, I don't really know where that technology is going, but... You know, it's definitely helped me achieve some pretty incredible goals that, like I said, when I started this journey, never thought were imaginable. That's amazing, Adam. Um, I think it's pretty cool that you've had the same running leg for, for five years, too. I think that's pretty awesome. That speaks volumes. <laughs> yeah, well, it's the same style. But same I've style, broken, okay. Bro- broken a lot of uh, parts and pieces in the process, so it's not the same blade or knee. <laughs> Okay. Broken a lot. <laughs> okay. Gotcha. Okay. Well, you you mentioned earlier um, that in 2015 you made some some decisions to improve your life, both physically and mentally. Um, one of those was a choice to stop drinking. And what was the turning point for you in making this change to your lifestyle? And how do you feel now? And the long term benefits of that decision. Yeah, um, yeah. In early 2015, I, I toured with this idea a few times before this, where um, you know I knew drinking was taking up a, a large part of my life and time, and, and you know late evenings and you know just every minute of every day. I wouldn't say every minute of every day, but a lot of time was spent um, you know hanging out with friends and drinking that you know could have spent been spent being more productive. And I toyed with this idea probably 2014 a couple different times of, um, you know, cutting back and, um, which felt great during those times, but never really stuck. So in 2015, I kind of set it as a, um, New Year's resolution to maybe try to go to my birthday, which is at the end of March, um, and not drink at all and just, just cut it out and see what happens. And, you know, during that time is when all these kind of dramatic, uh, changes started happening and reassessments and new goals. And, and, you know, that's when the, the program shifted from, you know, the, the college program I was in shifted and changed. And uh, this opportunity um, became available to try to run. And I just really started hitting life hard in early 2015 and these big dramatic changes and everything's, started to kind of click and by the time my birthday rolled around when that you know new year's resolution was going to be up i just continued to stick with that and see kind of where that where that year went and i had you know one of the best years of my life that year 
And so after that, I just realized that there's really no looking back and there's no need to um, go back to my old ways and just kind of continue forward and see uh, where things led and what, what happened next. And it seems like every year since 2015 has just been better than the last. And, you know, um, and it's just been really good for me. So, uh, and like you said, both physically and emotionally, psychologically, all things considered, uh, every year is just better than the last. And, mm-hmm. and uh, no looking back, only looking forward now. That's fantastic. A little little bit of deep soul searching there um, to try and find your way, which is fantastic. Right. 2015 was uh, big uh, big for me and big in that regard. And, and uh, I'm just very fortunate that uh, it kind of turned out the way it did. You know, Adam, you talked about uh, in 2015 on New Year's, you made that resolution that you, you were not going to drink until your birthday, which rolled around in March, and then you made the decision to just keep on going. Uh, during that first year, did you did you have any hiccups? Was it hard? What 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 kept you what kept you uh, going with your plan? How did you how did you make sure you didn't uh, stumble back? Like, what worked for you? Yeah, I think I mean that's a great question, and and you know, in my in the pro- master's program I did, we talk a lot about this in the substance use class, um, and it's kind of a you know, if you take that out of your life, you need to replace it with something, and and you know, it's Oddly enough, right shortly after my birthday is kind of when um, I started running and finding these other um, avenues to have some kind of release and, and focus and you know goal setting that kind of took attention off um, kind of previous habits and learning these new habits and um, just adding to these new habits and, and just really um, you know after I after I found that and then led into triathlon and was just, just kind of a snowball effect of learning all these new things that, you know, as you mentioned, it was, wasn't really any hiccups after that because of these new things that I found. And I think that was the biggest failure of what, you know, my attempts earlier is that I never really replaced those habits with anything new or anything productive or anything uh, healthy. Um, so I just kind of fell back in those old ways. So, uh, yeah, 2015, I, something clicked and, and, you know, I just started replacing these old, not so healthy habits with, um, better kind of avenues of, of, uh, running and, and healthy activities. So here, here we are five years later, it's a uh, 2020 and you haven't drank in, in five years. Do you think after the first year it gets easier? Yeah, definitely. I mean, especially after the first, I would say month or two, it, it got easier. And, and, you know, I would still go out and see the friends that I had hung out with before and drank with before. And, um, you know, I think everybody wants to be, uh, kind of on your team. And, and there was a little bit of fear on my part, uh, of going back to that, those settings mm-hmm. and not because I felt like I would have a hiccup or, or fall back into those old ways, but more so how, you know, my friends would judge me or, or look at me and, you know, anyone who is one of those positive, uh, you know, has a positive relationship in your life or or just wanting the best for you. So there was never any of that judgment. It was more um, fear on my part than, than, uh, you know, any judgment or, or, you know, looking down at you on anybody else's part. The only, the only, the only kind of, uh, 
fear was, you know, like what I was putting out there, which was um, not the reality. Right. Right. And I can imagine, too, uh, also trying to keep it uh, in short-term goals sometimes is a little bit easier to process than having this grandiose long-term goal. Uh, keeping it shorter goals are more reasonable, I think, more easier to to attain. Did you do a little bit of that, too, during that time? Yeah, no doubt. And that's, I mean, that's kind of how my running career has been. Just like like we mentioned a few minutes ago, uh, when I started um, running, there was never any idea of marathoning or, or any of the other crazy stuff. But when you break it down to these shorter, uh, more attainable goals and just kind of um, start, you know, making the slow progress each day, uh, it ends up, ends up to really big changes over a long period of time. So, yeah, breaking that down to, you know, a, a three-month stint early in 2015, um, you know, really led into five-plus years now at this point. And I would have never thought that was uh, attainable in early 2015 when I started, but it's just much more manageable when you kind of break it down and take it day-to-day and, you know, fill, like I said, fill your, fill your life with positive habits and positive relationships and people that will support you throughout uh, throughout the journey which I've had a ton of um, from the foundation side, from the friendship side, from the hospital side, from all the resources of, uh, you know, athletics. And, um, you know, when you, re- when you reach out and accept these types of uh, supports, uh, you know, you can go a long way. Thank you, Adam, for sharing your uh, personal story as far as uh, how, how your life has changed in the last five years. I think uh, it's really inspirational, and I'm sure anybody listening out there could could gain something very positive from that. And, of course, it doesn't have to be running, but filling it with something positive and, and, and building one success upon the other is, is really cool. So thanks. And speaking of yeah, us. And yeah. definitely, definitely running is not for everybody. So <laughs> not <that>. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I played be, basketball. I played basketball for almost 30 years and uh, I'm done running. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> definitely done, not for everyone, but yeah, like there is walking. something for, yeah. yeah, there is something for everyone and for it sure. doesn't have to be running, but once you find it, you can, you know, go after it. Mm-hmm. So speaking of changes, you made another big change in that you moved to Colorado a couple years ago. So why Colorado and what are you up to now? Yeah, I mean, after I finished that program in 2018, um, I felt like, you know, living in the D.C. area for 11 years since I got out of the hospital, um, I just felt like I, you know, needed a little bit of change and, and, you know, exploration, self-exploration. Um, I was feeling a little stagnant and, you know, I made big changes and like I said, 2015 and every couple of years, I, you know, feel myself start to get a little bit of com- a little bit comfortable. Um, so I try to challenge myself and kind of 2018 was another one of those challenges where, um, I wanted to get out of my comfort zone and, do a little self-exploration and kind of see, see where that led. So, you know, I didn't have anything tying me down to the DC area anymore. So I bought a camper van, uh, renovated it and then just kind of hit the road with, with the idea of exploring the West, seeing some friends, um, and then kind of seeing, seeing what happened with potentially the goal of moving and leaving the DC area. So, uh, that's what I did. I hit the road in like July, 2018. Um, 
started kind of in the Colorado Leadville area, uh, stayed in the state for a couple weeks and then went up to Utah and spent a couple weeks there. I uh, linked up with, um, my teammate who was there when I got hurt, um, and was the first one to my side. I spent, you know, a couple of weeks in Utah hanging out with him and his family and then went over to Tahoe and Northern California and spent some time with some other military friends uh, in California and then down the coast and then back through, you know, the Southern states and back up to Colorado and uh, just kind of ended up there. really liked it. I had some friends and family in that area um, and just thought I'd check it out um, and see how long that lasted. And now it's been two and a half years later and uh, bought a house there and, Really loving it. Uh, sold the van, bought a house, <laughs> got running water now. Uh, so, yeah, I, I'm plan on staying there for the foreseeable future and get the train full time up there and beautiful part of the country and got a mountain in my backyard and uh, skiing during the winter and a lot of you know a lot of good friends out there and and yeah, it's been nothing but good. Very cool. Well, Colorado is definitely a beautiful place to be. I've been out there a couple of times. Mike has too, and it's it's always lovely to be out there. Um, well, Adam, you've served on the EOD Warrior Foundation board for several years, and if you could choose a moment or a service that we provide um, that gives you great pride, what what would it be? Yeah, I mean, I think generally speaking, uh, just how far the organization has come since I initially started there in 2009, um, you know, in that time we've really increased our services and, you know, the merger with the, the, uh, Memorial foundation and, and just really how far the, the foundations come and how strong our resources are now, how many resources we have, how many caring people we have at the, uh, the foundation, um, it's just come a long way since I started in 2009 when, you know, you and I were kind of walking the halls and of Walter Reed and just doing a lot of, uh, you know, groundwork and, you know, just to be able to offer all these resources now to a lighter, a wider population. Um, it's just, uh, you know, really unfathomable, um, from when we started in 2009, just very, you know, proud to be a part of that. Um, I would think more specifically the PATH program, which I've been through myself, um, you know, that's just an incredible resource for anyone who is kind of having some challenges that, you know, they want to turn their, uh, turn their challenges into being a, you know, really successful life. I think the PATH program's great for that. We've been doing several of those a year. And then even more specifically, the C to C program when, when I was doing that is really, uh, you know, been a, um, something close to my heart because that that uh, trip and race um, really helped me become the person I am, and a lot of a lot of the participants um, really thrive after that. And that's the sole reason why I started running um, was from that from that event. And I know uh, you know a lot of our a lot of our uh, warriors who had participated in certain events along the way have a have an event that sticks out to them and that may have really changed their life. And, um, you know, there's so many of those events out there that, that uh, everyone is unique and, and individual to someone out there that probably really helped change their life. Yeah. 
Well, I know some of those, obviously, the the retreat programs and some of the programmatic offerings that we do and how it has impacted the lives of many. And I'm, I'm glad that you found great benefit in, in the programs that you've experienced. And certainly, I know that you've led the way for the Ski to See several years, or I think, I, I don't know, Adam, it's probably five or six years that we actually did yeah. that program. So Yeah, five years. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, PATH is, is definitely a, a proven program that has helped many of our EOD technicians and, and, and also their families, not just the the warrior themselves. So I think, right. you know, we can continue to have that relationship with Boulder Crest and it's, it's fantastic. Yeah, definitely. And speaking of having an impact, uh, you've had one on my life as well, Adam, because uh, if it wasn't for you, I wouldn't have had the opportunity to learn more about the OD Warrior Foundation or come here. So I want to thank you for that because uh, it's uh, definitely been one of the proudest moments of my life to serve this community. So thank you for that. Um, well, your name precedes yourself. You came highly regarded from uh, a lot of the guys you've worked with in the Eglin area who were friends of mine. And, and um, you know, they just were always raving about you. And that's, I, I never even met you, but I knew your name for sure. Uh, <laughs> because it's a small community and they, they loved you down there. So Yeah, well, thank yeah. you. Yeah, it was it was definitely some interesting years, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> So I got one more question for you before I turn it over to Sherry, and that is you have shared so much of your story, which I, I find so fascinating and, and so inspiring, and you've, you've laid it out what you've done, and it's fantastic, and there's so much to take away from that. So if there's somebody out there, Adam, uh, whether it be a veteran or civilian or anyone who is really struggling with challenges and trying to figure out how do I get over this and how do I find my purpose uh, being a, a rehab counselor now, and also going through your own journey, what, what, uh, how would you, how would you sum up that to help someone just get started in in figuring out how to succeed and also to to find one's purpose? What what would you say to them? Yeah, I mean that's a a really individualistic, uh, you know, question and journey and a really big question to answer. But you know, in my case, and I think it's true for most cases uh, is that, you know, change doesn't happen overnight. And, you know, especially true in my case, it took me seven years, seven and a half years to even initiate that change. Um, but once you start making those kind of small incremental changes in your life, uh, it really adds up again to big things over life, big things over time. Um, so, you know, my biggest advice would be to start making those small changes uh, day in and day out and kind of making progress uh no matter how small you may think it is um it's worth it in the long run and and you know i i started in april like i said early 2015 to april 2015 making these small changes and then just over four or five years seems like a very short amount of time uh i've you know never been happier i've never um, imagined these things early on when i started that in 2015 and and just keep with it day in and day out and big things will come in the future. Love it. Thank you. Mm -hmm. 
Well, Adam, we are we are certainly happy for you and with you um, in your journey and and where you are, uh, where you where you started and where you are today. We're we're definitely happy for you. And um, so we're going to lead into some final questions, and they're the fun questions. So we're going to lighten it up a little bit. And I hope you have done your homework, Mister Pop. Right. These are going to be difficult. So. Um, as far as a type of race, do you prefer a marathon or a triathlon? And can you tell us why? Well, uh, I, I prefer running, um, <laughs> and I guess mar- marathoning just because, uh, it's the way I kind of, I mean, it's just enjo- more enjoyable to me uh-huh. than a triathlon, but, uh, triathlon is more challenging for sure for me, um, just because of different opponents and, you know, I'm not a swimmer, so, you know, mm-hmm. working hard on that. So it's, it's more challenging and a uh, better way to challenge myself and, and compete. Um, but definitely I prefer running or marathoning, which I guess kind of sounds crazy at this point. <laughs> no, it's not crazy. Do you have any plans for when's your next marathon? When you, What's on your schedule? Well, I just got off two big weeks. So uh, two big, two, two big weeks of racing. So I'm, done until like March next year. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. I ran, I ran a hundred miler last Saturday and then a 50 miler this Saturday. So, wow. you know, back to back weekends, two days, 150 miles and um, I'm done for a while. Yeah. That's amazing. So in the interim, I'm sure that you, you know, do physical, you know, um, strength building and all those sorts of things in between marathons. Is that correct? Yeah, I'll keep up with some kind of daily maintenance, no like long high miles. Um, probably get back on the bike and in the pool here within mm-hmm. the next couple of weeks and just more uh, maintenance to kind of get ready for next season. But it's definitely, uh, you know, definitely time to, to kind of take a step back, um, you know, yeah. enjoy my accomplishments, rest a little bit, um, and then get back at it. Yeah, for sure. Well, your body needs rest, you know, That's right. needs, needs a chance in, to in rest and restore. <laughs> What's that? I said in my mind. It's in been a long mind. year, so. Okay, gotcha. Okay. Um, all right. Well, how about your favorite holiday of the year? Well, you know, not a huge uh, holiday person, but um, my mom has a great uh, Christmas party every year on uh, Christmas Eve. So to get together with the family and friends over that time, it's just one day out of the year that I really look forward to. And, and mainly just because of, uh, the people who I don't get to see that often. Um, my brothers, you know, are both, we're all three kind of spread out throughout the country. So to get to get together with them, it's kind of the one time each year that, um, I know we can all be together, spend some quality time and, and, um, just enjoy each other's company. So anytime I can do that is, is a great, day but uh it typically happens around the holidays christmas or thanksgiving or- mm-hmm. right holidays bring people together in a lot of ways and you know mm-hmm. something that i've always admired about you and and your entire family is that you prioritize family and you you make it happen every year and and i just love that i think it's super cool <laughs> yeah um, how about a clean joke? What's your favorite clean <laughs> joke? <laughs> I have so many favorite jokes, but <laughs> in, <laughs> in the theme of today, uh, and I heard this kind of recently, um, so Pirate walks into a bar and he's got a paper towel on his head 
And the bartender said, what the heck's going on with that paper towel on your head? And the pirate replies, Arr, there's a bounty on my head. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Love it. Oh, my gosh. That's so I got funny. some really bad one. Really bad jokes, but uh, no, one it's we'll funny. go with for today. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> All right. How about your favorite movie or genre of movie? Uh, I'm really into documentaries and just kind of storytelling and listen to other people's personal story. And I think there's a lot you can uh, lean out of these um, and just understanding the kind of human nature and, and, you know, how people work and, and just there's so many incredible stories out there just to uh, try to catch up on and, and maybe gain a little bit of knowledge from uh, others' stories. Gotcha. I like documentaries too. Anything, anytime that I can learn something, I feel good about my time sitting on the couch watching television, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, how about your favorite way to unwind and relax? Uh, I mean, non-athletic stuff is, you know, travel, which is really hard this year. <laughs> mm-hmm. Or, yeah. uh, you know, I've been to, I think, 40-something countries at this point, and typically you know, traveling to a couple new ones each year, um, which didn't happen this year because of all the, all the stuff going on in the world. But, um, that's definitely one way I like to, to kind of get away. Um, it's typically like kind of in the off season and just relax and forget about everything for, for a week or two, um, or cooking and grilling. Um, there's another, another thing I like to do that, you know, just kind of takes your mind off of things that are going on throughout the day or the week and, and, let you uh, enjoy a good meal and uh, feel kind of accomplished at the, the end of the meal that you prepared that. Mm-hmm. Cool. Very cool. Well, Adam, we certainly appreciate your time today and uh, speaking with us and sharing your journey and your story. And um, we just thoroughly enjoyed talking with you and appreciate all that you continue to do to maybe motivate others to find their purpose and just find their way there. There's, there's something out there for everyone. And um, so thank you so very much. Yeah. Thanks for all you do. And uh, I hope you uh, continue to do the great work that you do. Thank you. Thanks Adam. Adam. Hope you get to spend time with your family uh, during the holidays and uh, stay safe and keep doing what you're doing as well. It's, it's awesome. We appreciate you. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Mike. And thank uh, you both. All right. Take care, Adam. All right. You you too. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to our Behind the Warrior podcast. This series is provided to you by the EOD Warrior Foundation. To learn more, please visit us on Facebook or at eodwarriorfoundation.org. And don't forget to tell a friend.